So we are finishing this morning in our Ask series. We took the month of January to answer questions that were asked by you and by your friends. What, in light of recent events, the way that we posed the question was, in light of recent news or recent events, what big questions would you like answered? And we will try and put together a sermon series that addresses those topics. And so big questions came back, and this is one of those big questions. The question is, how do we live in a sexually broken world? How do we live in a sexually broken world? And and related to this, you, you can see how important this topic is right now with the Me Too movement, right? The the hashtag Me Too, and, and some of you are going, uh, I'm not quite sure what a Me Too movement is. I don't know what a hashtag is. Uh, that That's okay. So uh, when you're on social media and you're trying to say this is what's uh, what I'm talking about, the, a subject matter, you use a hashtag. And people can search for what you're talking about and via certain subjects. So you can use Me Too as the subject. This subject exploded last summer. Me Too. 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 All over the place. Me Too is a statement that a person has experienced sexual injury through harassment, rape, or abuse. And it just has been everywhere. In fact, there, there have been spin-offs of this. Some of you are going, yes, we all know about Me Too. And, but you may not have heard of the Church Too movement, which, while not as popular, has certainly been making its rounds as people are talking about these very same things that have happened to them within the church. And especially by uh, church leadership. This is a major, major issue. It's been a major issue for a long time, but it is particularly heightened right now. We have everything from Aziz Ansari to Larry Nasser as problems are being brought to light. And so my job this morning is to stand up and say, what's the solution to this, right? (laughs) How do we live in a sexually broken world like the one that we find ourselves in right now? Where everyone is beginning to see just how broken it is. There are Lots of types of sexual brokenness. Many of them stem from people's own sin, things that they have done that result in their guilt and shame. But the things that we're going to focus on this morning are those who are experiencing the pain because of things that have been done to them. And as I was thinking about this, there are actually uh, many scriptures in the Bible that refer to this. There are many passages and stories that talk about this. The one that I uh, wanted to look at with you um, comes from Genesis chapter 16. In Genesis chapter 16, uh, Abram and Sarai, this is uh, Abraham and Sarah before their names were changed, but Abram and Sarai are together, they have been promised by God that they are going to have a son who will be the heir of the promise. All of the things that God has promised to Abraham, or to Abram at this point, that he would have a land, that he would uh, have many descendants who would be God's people in his place, his land, with his presence. Those promises have been made to Abram, but he hasn't yet seen the fruit of it. He hasn't even yet had one offspring, let alone many descendants. And so in Genesis chapter 16, starting in verse 1, it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. 
So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abraham said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Now, there, there were other stories that I could have selected where uh, you have someone who was raped and the, the, the vindication of that and all of those kinds of things. But the reason that I selected this one is because it seems to me to be more nuanced. And because it's a little bit more nuanced, when we have read this passage in the past, the way that we typically read this passage and look at this is from Abraham and Sarah's perspective and say, look at how they were not trusting in the promises of God or they tried to grab and claim and take hold of the promises of God from their own. But we rarely see this passage from Hagar's perspective. A woman who is used and abused, and mistreated, and outcast, and runs away. You can start by looking at this and saying, how in the world did an Egyptian woman end up becoming the servant of Sarai in the first place, when they are residing in the land of Canaan? Well, back just a couple of chapters ago, Abram and Sarai had, because of famine, gone down to Egypt and spent some time there. They had played some tricks on some people so as to avoid trouble. And in those tricks, they uh, ended up getting things from people. And some of the things that they got were male and female servants, along with many other possessions. So here, this woman has been taken from her homeland, from her people, given as a servant to Abram and Sarai, then dragged away to Canaan, where then she is treated like this. It's, it's stories like this. It, it's stories of um, people in positions of authority taking advantage of those who are under them. Teachers and child care workers. Bosses. Educators. Doctors. Strangers. Friends of family. And the women who are treated this way are left with what? There, there could be a variety of emotions that Hagar is feeling as, as Sarai treats her harshly when she has been forced into this situation to begin with. But as she runs away, away from everything, she is alone She is shamed. She has no protection. She's afraid. You see, one, one of the things that I uh, think is so insipid about this whole thing is uh, our lack of understanding of how all of this works. Because when we have victims who uh, have had things happen to them, they're experiencing emotions and they're going, why do I feel this way? It wasn't my fault. Though some have been told that it was. 
I didn't do anything wrong. Why do I feel a sense of shame? You see, in our culture, our culture operates on guilt and innocence. You do things right and you do things wrong. And when you do things right, there is honor associated with that. And when you do things wrong, there is guilt and shame associated with that. And because of that, we don't really understand shame apart from guilt. And so if I am an innocent party in this, why do I feel shame? And yet there it is. You, you can tell because of the number of people that are, they, they hide it. It's embarrassing. I don't want to talk about this. I, I'm ashamed of something, not that I did, but that was done to me. Because shame is not uh, simply something that I have done wrong, but something that dishonors me. Shame is not the opposite of innocence, it's the opposite of honor. And so when you have been dishonored, you have been shamed, and that's what we see here with Hagar. Hagar has been shamed. In our culture, when something like this happens, we're looking for justice in this. How is this fair to Hagar? She was innocent, Yet these things happen to her. There should be some sort of punishment. There should be some sort of retribution. We ought to have justice about this. In the culture that that this comes from, that this story comes from, it's all about honor and shame. It is not nearly so much about guilt and innocence. The, The reactions that we have when we see that something wrong has happened and we want justice for that. Those same emotions are felt, but from a different angle in this cultural context. That is, uh, when someone has been shamed, when a person or a family has been shamed, the reaction is that honor needs to be restored. Punishment needs to happen not because they did something wrong, but in order to restore the honor. That was there. And here she is uh, broken and cast out. She has run away. And is in a place of shame. Uh, Dr. Brene Brown gave a TED talk uh, about the difference distinguishing between guilt and shame. Wonderful, wonderful TED talk. Uh, But she put it this way. Guilt is something I did that was bad. Shame is... I am bad. That is, the difference between I'm sorry, I made a mistake, and I'm sorry, I am a mistake. That's that's the the sense of, of shame that comes. That so often is tied into this whole thing that when that when um, victims are abused, they are shamed, and they are left in in a place where they are broken and fearful. Because how could these things happen? Things that should not happen. And so we ask, how did this happen? So like I do every week, I go back to Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. If you're getting tired of going back to Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, um, don't get tired of going back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. 
This is, this is where it all comes from. I, I, I am hoping that as we continue to see all of the things that originated there, the way that God intended things to be and the way that they were broken, and then the way that that set forth the rest of human history since then, we will begin to understand the beauty of God's creation and what He intends for His world. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it said, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and in in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. To every beast of the earth and to every bird in the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And it was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. You can see it here in Genesis chapter 1, as God's people are given an honor, they are given an identity. Who are they? They are made in God's image. They have great value and worth because they have been created in the image of God. They have been given a position with authority and power over all of the things that God has created. And they are there to be the caretakers of it. And so here are God's people with His identity given to them. You are valuable. You are made in my image. And they're they're given this position. In Genesis chapter 2 it says, And the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not a helper... Suitable, uh, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Both the man and the woman together are made in the image of God, and here they are are created for this uh, oneness relationship. Naked and unashamed, being united in a perfect harmony. It's a beautiful thing that uh, when, when Adam first sees her, he, he calls out, finally! Finally! This is what I have been needing. This is what I have been wanting. This woman that, that is a perfect complement to him. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There is something about the sexuality of man and woman that is so tied up with who they are. It is not ultimately their highest value. Being created in the image of God is their greatest value, but it is so personal. The sexuality of mankind is so intensely personal that when this is broken and when it is violated, it hurts like almost nothing else. In in fact, for people who don't believe in God, for for people who don't have the image of God as uh, the, the value of human life, sexuality is the next thing. This has then become everything. This is who I am. And 
And though it was created this way, that both would be naked and unashamed, united together without any problem. In Genesis chapter 3, in verse 6, having been told not to take from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the woman sees, verse 6, that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. And the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. When the fall happened, this division happened and suddenly man and woman were ashamed in each other's presence. And ashamed before God and so they covered up and they hid. And this brokenness has played out in many ways, in many facets, all over the world and all throughout history. And Me Too is the latest version. But there is hope. There is hope that at some point it will be restored Because God so loves His people. This is not the way it was intended to be. God loves His people and will restore them. In Isaiah chapter 42, God says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. To to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. God, God promises that His chosen one would be full of His Spirit and would come to bring restoration. He would come to bring both justice and gentleness. This one person would come and he would bring justice. All of the expectations that the law would come until uh, he will not grow weary, he will not be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. But look at the way that he comes. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench, as he brings forth justice. How can that be? How can we have a Savior anticipated like that? One who would come that brings the justice that we so demand, and yet with such gentleness... Which, with such compassion that those who are wounded might be bound and lifted up. How can that be? Other than that, God Himself has said, this is how it must be. One of the things that I think keeps happening in this is we, we are beginning to see some justice happening, right? Right? 
As Me Too calls out various people and we are seeing some justice come to them, some punishment, some consequences come to them for the things that they have done, we rejoice in that. That's right. That's right. That should happen. But what I see still is uh, victims in a, a, a place of pain. Many of them, even uh, more piled on top of them for coming forward to begin with. What is it for them? What kind of hope is there for them? This is the hope. That this one who brings justice will come with gentleness and compassion. Again, in Isaiah chapter 54, it says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Do not be confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth He is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. For you who have been broken, for you who have been injured, He says, I am I'm coming. I'm coming and I'm going to embrace you and I'm going to hold you in gentleness and I'm going to lift you up to a place of honor where there will no longer be any shame or embarrassment, where the shame and the embarrassment that was before will be, will, uh, be forgotten because of the honor with which I will lift you up. He continues on in, in verse 10 of chapter 54. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. O oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacle of agate your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression. You shall not fear and from terror, and from terror for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. If Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy milk and wine without money and without price. He says, I, I am going to come not only to uh, restore those who have been shamed to a place of honor, but also to protect so that you no longer have to be afraid. You no longer have to be afraid of what may happen to you in the future. You don't have to worry about what might happen to your children. Because I, the Lord, am with you. I am your defender. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, 
declares the Lord. These are the things that were promised in the book of Isaiah that were looking forward to the things that were to come. And when Jesus came, he began to uh, do these things. He, he began to fulfill these prophecies. And when you start watching, as you read through the Gospels, the way that, that Jesus walks amongst people, the, the way he stands up against those who are wrong and condemns them, the way that he walks with such gentleness, lifting up uh, the, the children and the weak and the broken and the women who have been outcast. We see that this is exactly the kind of servant that God said that he would be. Coming to bring justice, but coming with such gentleness. So that the very same themes that were mentioned in Isaiah of things that were to come, uh, Revelation then echoes in chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and, he will be, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. There's hope that God will restore all things in a beautiful way. But as I look at it from here, that seems so far away. So let's go back to Hagar and see what happened next for her. In Genesis 16, picking it up in verse 7, Hagar having fled from Sarai, it says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man and his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Be'er Laharoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Here she is. She's been uh, used and mistreated. She has fled to get away. And now she finds herself alone, pregnant and alone, next to the spring. And God shows up and says, I know who you are. And I will be with you. And I will bless you. And I will bless your offspring. And her response is to say, you are a God who sees. You are a God who sees. You see, sometimes I think that when things happen like this, we are afraid that God doesn't know or doesn't care. 
But what we see here is that God very much knows and cares. And so while Hagar thought that she had been abandoned by God, in reality, there he was. I know you. I will bless you. I know you. And I will bless you. You are a God of seeing because truly here I have seen him who looks after me. God sees. There is no need to be afraid. Because he sees and will be with you. There is no need to be ashamed because God will raise you up. And yet in the midst, we find there is a lot of pain. And I would love to say that there is some sort of special thing that you can do or say or be or something and gone. And I don't know how that could be. I I don't have magic words. All I have is a powerful God who has sent a wonderful Savior. A Savior who restores not just the guilty to innocence, but the shamed to honor. And we, as God's people, gathered as a community of His people in this place, ought to be establishing that here and now. We as His people, I believe, must first of all be safe. So that those who have been victimized before or those who fear being victimized of the future would not have fear here in this place. We must be a safe people. First John Chapter 1, verse 5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We must be a people who walk in the light, a people who walk in the truth. That doesn't mean that we pretend we don't have sin. It's the opposite of that. So Sometimes I think that people go, oh, I'm supposed to walk in the light, which means I'm supposed to pretend that there isn't any darkness. That's not what this is saying. This is saying the opposite of that. If we say that there is no darkness in me, we're lying. This is the kind of place where we need to be able to come to one another and say, this is the darkness that I am carrying with me. This is the guilt that I'm carrying with me. This is the shame that I have been bearing for years and have not been able to speak about. This needs to be that kind of a place where that can be brought forward safely and all of the light can expose that so that the darkness is not there anymore. 
We need to be a place that is open, that each of us is willing to expose our sin so that it can be dealt with and removed so that as a collection of God's people, we can be a safe place because each person in this place is safe. We can set up structures. We have a child safety policy with two worker rules and, and we can set up all kinds of policies and manuals on ways that we will structurally build a safe community here. Those are good and must be there. We should have accountability in the structure that we have so that we do not leave room for wolves to come in and take advantage of a poorly managed system. But ultimately, no system can make the the place safe. It requires the people to be safe. And for the people to be safe, they must be able to be open about their sin and have it be removed. The second thing that we must do after being a place that is safe for those who are afraid is that we must restore honor to the shamed. In Romans chapter 12, verse 9, it says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. We we could spend two weeks or longer just walking through this passage on what it means to be God's people. How it is that we can uh, live with humility and gentleness and grace, that we would not be proud, but that we would be humble. That we would walk alongside those who are rejoicing and rejoice with them. That we could walk alongside those who are broken and weep with them. That we can be a people of empathy and grace. I, I am already seeing this playing out in our church. I, I see this in the life groups. I see this in the one-on-one relationships. You do outdo one another in showing honor. You, you do rejoice in hope. You're patient in tribulation. You're constant in prayer. You're contributing to the needs of those around you. And we must continue that. We must listen. And watch and wait for those who are in pain. People who are in pain are not quick to speak. They're not quick to reveal it. And so we must be observant. Expecting that there are those who are here who are in pain like that. Listening for the brokenness. Addressing it with gentleness. Saying things like, I hear that. Would you like to talk about that? Would you like to talk about that here? Would you like to talk about it some other time? Would you like to talk about it with someone else? Sometimes the person to identify the pain is not the right person is not the right person to address the pain. But that doesn't mean you can't help. Walking with gentleness and empathy 
listening. Slow to speak. Quick to weep. Words cannot repair or fix. But walking alongside with empathy can make a really big difference. We must care for those who are in need. In Matthew chapter 25, it says in verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you curse it into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and that we did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. We are to be a people who are looking for the weak, who are looking for the broken, to encourage them, to walk alongside them, to uphold them. That is the ministry that the church is given from now until that glorious day when God will restore all things and make all things new. On that day, He will bring perfect justice. On that day, He will bring perfect healing and perfect honor. There will be no more need for shame. There will be no more need for fear or guilt because He will perfect it all. But from now until then, we are called in doing and carrying out the ministry of Jesus to bring these words of hope and hands and arms and ears of compassion to lift up those who are hurting. Dr. Brene Brown again says, Shame thrives on secrecy, silence, and judgment. But the antidote to shame is empathy. Shame thrives on secrecy, silence, and judgment. But the antidote to shame is empathy. When something has happened to us, our tendency is to hide it. And shame thrives there. But when someone comes along with an empathetic ear, much healing can take place. Rachel Denhollander was the one who uh, first brought the case against Dr. Larry Nasser. She was also the final one to speak at his trial this last week. And on Friday, she had an opinion piece in the New York Times that I would encourage you to read, but I will give you this excerpt from it. Now that the world has been transfixed by our case, 
We must make sure not even one more young woman is preyed upon as I was. The first step toward changing the culture that led to this atrocity is to hold enablers of abuse accountable. There is much that needs to be done legislatively, including extending or removing the statute of limitations on criminal and civil charges related to sexual assault and strengthening mandatory reporting laws and ensuring truth in sentencing so that dangerous offenders are not released early to damage more children. Most important, we need to encourage and support those brave enough to speak out. Predators rely on community protection to silence victims and keep them in power. Far too often, our commitment to our political party, our religious group, our sport, our college, or a prominent member of our community causes us to choose to disbelieve or to turn away from the victim. Far too often, it feels easier and safer to see only what we want to see. Fear of jeopardizing some overarching political, religious, financial, or other ideology, or even just losing friends or status, leads to willful ignorance of what is right in front of our own eyes in the shape and form of innocent and vulnerable children. Ask yourself, how much is a child worth? Every decent human being knows the answer to that question, and now it's time to act like it. So I want to finish the same way I finished last week. In a world where power is abused for self-gratification, we must show honor to all. We must help the weak. Bring sin to light. Restore the repentant and trust that God will hold the guilty accountable. And we must begin in the church. Let's pray. Oh God, we need your help. We need your love and your grace, your compassion. Father, I know that there are those because they have been shamed by things that others have done to them. Father, I know that there are those this morning who are afraid. Afraid that things that have been done to them might be done again. Or might be done to their children. Or to those whom they love. And so, Father, we need you. The God who sees us. We need you to be with us. To never leave us or forsake us. To restore us. And so Lord I pray that you would fill us with your spirit toward that end. And that you would make us a people of compassion. Whose eyes are open. And whose ears are open to the pain of those around us. That we might listen well. That we might pray well that we might build one another up and show them honor so that they might be glorified with you in that great day when you make all things new. And it is in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.